this morning, um, I'm going to spend just a, bu- a brief moment just kind of recapping where we've been la- for the last two weeks because it's going to come together this morning as we talk about today uh, the New Testament as theology. Two weeks ago, we talked about New Testament and, and Scripture in general, but particularly the New Testament as being a, a historical document, that we have a faith and we have texts that were given to us and written at a particular place in time. We have authors like Paul who are writing to churches who exist in a particular culture and a place and a time, and we can't just ignore that. There are certain universal truths that come through in the pages, but there, are also, uh, there is also a a contextual reality, and a lot of times understanding that context helps us give understanding to what the writers are trying to say. And in lots of ways, our our historical knowledge is expanding and growing, and we can use those pieces of information to better understand the text. But there are other ways in other times and places in the text that we don't particularly know that. And so we just have to read and act in faith and try to understand with the Spirit what's being said. Sometimes that's obvious. Sometimes it's not so obvious, Um, and so we just need to continue to work through those things. And then last week we looked, uh, we actually used the Genesis narrative, and we looked about how the the text, and I don't know if I said this real explicitly, but I think it, I hope it came through, but the texts that we have are all sorts of different types of writing. And so we have poetry, and we have apocalypse, which is like Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, which are these sort of wild metaphorical stories that God has given the church. Um, We have certainly history, biography, all sorts of different types of writing, and we need to be aware of what it is that we're reading, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today as we get into uh, one of Jesus' teaching, because it matters. And the question is, we asked last week at the end is, how do you take a poem literally? A poem is meant to be built with metaphor and imagery and language that tells you something real, and in some ways a metaphor allows you to say something perhaps truer uh, than if you just actually described it. And so we just need to be aware that those types of writings are in the text and know what it is that we're reading. Because again, knowing how to read it can help us understand what it actually says. And then today we're gonna talk about the practice of theology and the fact that these these all are theological texts. And so we're gonna talk first a little bit about what that is and what that means. And then I'm gonna ask you to enter into a conversation with me as we think about the mustard seed, the parable of the mustard seed. And, and what it means for us today. So the first question we have to ask then, of course, is what is theology? And, and I'm gonna start, and t- we're gonna talk a little bit about what it isn't, because a lot of times we hear that word and you th- we think we're doing theology or thinking about God, and we're doing something that's maybe part of it or bound up with it, but it's maybe more. So I think that'll become clear here as, as we move through this. First, theology is not, theology is not doctrine. Now, theology gives rise to doctrine, but if theology is just thinking about God, doctrine in some ways is both the thing that comes out of it, doctrine being, of course, a, a set of propositions or beliefs that we have about God or the world or Jesus. Um, and so theology, the study of the text, the study of God, the understanding, the, the work of understanding drives us towards doctrine. And then doctrine also gives shape in sort of the boundary within which we do theology. So we have historically as a church created fundamental beliefs about scripture, about Jesus, about who he was, about God himself, and those kind of give us boundary markers. And so there are, there are schools of theology that go way outside of those. And when, when we steer outside of those sort of boundary markers, then we have to ask serious questions about whether that's good theology or not. It may make philosophical sense in some way, but it may run 
off the road when it comes to orthodox belief, because we do have a set of doctrine. But doctrine itself is not the theological tax, task. It helps give shape to it. In some ways, it is a product of it, but it is not the act of theology, okay? It is also not bi just biblical study and knowledge. Of course, we need to study our texts. We need to be aware of what's in here. Being able to cite scripture and understand storylines and plots, that's always important. But simply knowing the story in some ways is not good enough. And so theology is what we sort of do after we know the story. And we'll get into exactly what that is in here in just a second. But we can know what the story says, but not know what the story means, if that makes sense. We can understand the words and sort of the historical chronology of the text, but not understand what that means for us in our particular time or place. It's also not simply not just religious experience. And there are some streams of theology and the church that would put heavy emphasis on a religious experience. So do you experience God? Is it, an, is it sort of a charismatic being, being taken up in the spirit? And not that that's not important and that doesn't happen. Uh, I, I do think that it can and does. I, I don't have a, you know, we're not hooping and hollering in here. That's not necessarily this church's experience, but there are churches who experience God that way. Um, but the danger comes when we're deriving our thinking about God from just our experience. And we sort of turn our back on the text and the historical doctrines of the church. We, we can kind of go off the road a little bit that way as well. And the other thing that is actually becoming more and more popular, I see this a lot more, is that theology is not simply an ethical system. And certainly if we're studying God and what God has said, we are creating a system of ethics and morals in a way that we ought to act in the world. But there is sort of like a, an odd and almost dangerous, well, not almost, it is a dangerous sort of propensity for segments of the church to build an ethical system, a system of justice and uh, care for the world, and they kind of forget why. And so they de develop a system and they, can say, they say, this is how we ought to act, but they forget to bring with it God and kingdom and all of the foundation upon which we ought to build that. Does that make sense? So you kind of come unmoored from your foundation. And then you're stuck with an eth ethical system that's subject to mutation and kind of can, can and does in some ways move away from the gospel itself. All of those things ought to be part of the theological task as we think about God. And certainly as we understand the Bible and what God wants to say to us, we ought to develop all of those things. But there have been times and places in the church and are currently times or places and, and segments of the church that want to say theology is one or more of those things and that's it. Those first two, doctrine and sort of biblical knowledge have been historically been sort of on the conservative side of the church, right? We're very, we care very much about that, which we should. And then the other two, experience and sort of just a moral system would probably go on the more sort of liberal progressive side of the church. And if we look at those, those wings and those areas in the church as we identify them, you can see those at play even today. But what I wanna say is that we need all of those together and all of those come about as we do good theology. So what then is theology if it's not those things. It is all those things sort of wrapped together. But theology, I've heard it is explained as, as the task that we as the church engage in as we understand that we stand between the text and context. Right? So theology is the understanding of all that and then making it real for our time and place, our, our church, our city, our culture, our nation. How do we take what is universally true in the scripture and then put that in a context and deliver that to the world around us in a way that means something, is helpful, and is authentic and obedient to the scriptures. Okay, so the theological task is in a way 
making what we know real and tangible for the people around us. Okay? I do want to say, sort of on the heels of that, that the gospel itself is not subject to change. It's not that we're, it doesn't become just relative to whatever context we're in. Like the gospel is the gospel. God sent Jesus as his son to live a life, to die, to be resurrected, to be ascended, and to become king. That is a universal biblical truth. We can put that one in the column of doctrine. Let's not move off of that, right? But the question then is, okay, if, if that's true, what does that then mean, right? So how do, how do we, one, explain that to people, but also to show that to people? Like, how does that actually change our life here? We have particular problems in our world that did not exist 2,000 years ago. And we have to figure out how to take what happened 2,000 years ago and make it real and manifest here. And that is the task of theology. Does that make some sense to you? I hope so. Gospel as good news, certainly there is the big G gospel of, of Jesus in his life, but, but the idea that the gospel is good news ought to replace, supplant, come up against whatever the bad news is. And again, there's a universal bad news, which the gospel corrects, and that is that we have all sinned, we've all fallen short, we're all in trouble, um, and, and Jesus is here to fix that. But there's also lots of other bad news, right? We have people who endure terrible things in their life and suffering. We prayed for some of them this morning, right? The world is broken in all sorts of ways, and every time we look around, we see another way in which the world is broken. So the good news of Jesus ought to, in some way, address that. We ought to try to bridge that gap. And, and a lot of times people say, oh, the answer is Jesus, right? Well, how? And, and that's kind of the question we're asking, right? If the answer is Jesus, what does that actually mean? How is Jesus the answer? And so we're going to, again, we're going to kind of think through that today as we come to one of his parables. Let's go ahead and, and read. We're going to today read, we're going to be reading from Luke. It's chapter 13, it's verses 18 and 19, and it's short today. He says, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And so, like I said earlier today, I'm going to ask you to kind of engage in a conversation with me. And the first question I want to ask you is, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you've read this, you've heard this probably even in Sunday school. So you're familiar with this, but what is the first thing that comes to mind or what pops out at you as we first read this? What do you think it means? I'm sorry? Growth, growth in our foundation and belief, okay. Let's, let's go through sort of some of the things that we've been working through the last couple of weeks. So let's start with the idea of genre or type of writing. What, what is this? So <laughs> it's a parable, right? Okay, so this is one of Jesus' parables, okay? Uh, what, what is a parable? Great. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Is it true? That's kind of a funny question, right? Why is it a funny question? Because it's a story that Jesus made up to tell a point, right? It's, it's, not, it's not like he said, oh, there's a mustard seed and it grew. Like he's telling us a story and it's kind of like a mother goose tale, right? He's telling you a story in order to make you make a point, right? And so this is not... But this comes back to, you got to know what you're reading. Like, this is not a factually, historically true story that Jesus is telling us. He's made up a story to illustrate a point, okay? So we're not reading history or objective fact. We're reading a parable, which is not true. It's a story that Jesus has made up that tells us something true that's well beyond itself. It's a metaphor, 
And we certainly can't take it literally. Let's talk a little bit about the, the Lucan context, the co context that Luke has placed this in within his writing, okay? Because that's, that's very much a, po a, a point of uh, importance to understand how, how Luke has put these stories together because some, a lot of times, and we're going to say today that the context helps inform exactly what the, the meaning may be. So right before this, and you remember Caleb, about, oh, when was the last time he taught? Three, four weeks ago. He said, whenever you see a therefore, you ought to ask what it's there for, right? Because, I mean, because the way therefore works linguistically is that it alludes to the thing that just happened, right? So therefore basically means I'm saying this because of what just came before it. So anytime you see therefore, you got to stop and go back to what just happened, okay? So what just happened in Luke's narrative is Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and a woman who was crippled, she was sort of hunched over, she couldn't, she were told she couldn't stand up and hadn't been able to for a long time. She had come into the synagogue and in the midst of his teaching on the Sabbath, he called her down to the front in front of everybody and he healed her. And that made the leader of the synagogue really upset. Right? And he lashes out and says, there are six other days of the week to be doing the work. Today is the day of rest. Why would you do that? And Jesus fires back and makes him look terrible and says, which of you would not on the Sabbath go home and untie your donkey and take them to get water? Right? You take care of your donkey. Why should this daughter of the, God, the Most High God not be unbound from illness that she's been given? Right? And so they immediately look terrible because they know they're going to go home in the afternoon and they're going to untie their donkeys. Right? They would unbind the donkey, but they won't unbind the woman, is, is Jesus' point. So that's the story that has come right before it. And if you back up to the one before that, Jesus has told another parable, and this one is about the fig tree. It's the parable where the, the master comes to the tree and it's not prepared, it's not producing fruit, so he's getting rid of it. And then his helper says, no, no, give me a year to kind of tend to it and let's see what happens, right? But one of the things we can take from that is that a tree that doesn't bear fruit is ultimately going to get cut down. And that's a, an image that Jesus uses a couple times. So that, it was that parable, then the incident, the historical incident of the woman being healed, and then we get the mustard seed parable. And then following the mustard seed parable, we get the parable about the yeast and the leavened bread. It's another short little kingdom parable. It says the kingdom is like a little bit of yeast that a woman puts in with flour and the whole thing becomes leavened, okay? Um, and then right after that comes another parable that he tells about the narrow door. And that has to do with the door to heaven being narrow. And, and then he goes on to talk about how you're gonna come in the middle of the night and you're gonna knock on the door and the keeper of the house is basically gonna say, I didn't know you, you never got it. You're not gonna end up in here. Right? So that gives you sort of the context in which we find this. So it's the two sort of stories that Luke has put on each side of it. This one sits in the middle of it. Okay? So um, that's sort of the textual or the, the, the Lucan context. I also want to provide you with a little bit of biblical context in terms of where this imagery comes from because Jesus is not just telling a story out of the blue. He rarely just makes something up that has no meaning for the people. A lot of times Jesus is pulling stories from the Old Testament and he's changing something. And I said last week, anytime something sticks out or is different or is weird, pay attention because usually it matters. And we're gonna see that that does today. So this, this imagery of the mustard tree growing up and, and the birds nesting in it has appeared in the text before. And if we go back to Daniel, there's this moment where King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, the king of Babylon at the time, has this dream. And when he wakes up, he says, 
to Daniel, who will ultimately interpret the dream. But he says, this is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong. Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And from it, all living beings were fed. Um, and Daniel will go on to interpret the story because the tree ends up getting chopped down in the dream. And so Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree and ultimately he's going to be cut down. Um, but the imagery is what is important out of that. And then earlier on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is speaking with a Pharaoh and he says, consider Assyria, Assyria another one of the world powers, says it was a cedar of Lebanon with fair branches and forest shade and of great height, its top among the clouds. All the birds of the air made their nests in its boughs, and under its branches all the animals of the field gave birth to their young, and in its shade all nations lived. And Ezekiel, again, would also go on and explain that. But within that ancient year culture, the idea, one of the, one of the other sort of mythical stories that abounded last year, we, or last week we talked about some of the other uh, creation stories, but in lots of the other cultures, there was this idea that in the middle of the earth was the tree of life and that it gave birth and, and life to everything in the world. And so great kingdoms and great leaders were often seen to be enormous trees because they mimicked and got their life and their power from the, this, the tree of life. And so the idea that Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the Pharaoh would be these great trees that would reach to the sky and provide shade and comfort to everything is, is a way to say that these powers, these empires and their leaders are, are these great things that give peace and tranquility and greatness to the world. Does that make sense? And that's why all the animals and everybody comes and finds home under the trees and then the airs or the birds of the air nest in their branches. Okay, does that, does that make sense to you? So we can see Jesus kind of picking that up, right? This is, this is a Lebanon cedar. This is what would have existed. And so when you hear in Ezekiel talking about the cedar of Lebanon, and again, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel, uh, this is the type of tree. These can grow to be 130 feet tall, which we obviously have some trees out west that get 300 feet. But as far as the ancient Near East is concerned, this is, this is, the, big, this is the big dog, okay? Um, and you can see it's a, this beautiful branching tree that provides plenty of space for birds to kind of come and nest in. This is what Jesus decides to use. So when we talk about what did Jesus change in the imagery, it was this. This is a mustard tree. So we, think, we don't know exactly, we don't know for sure that this was it. It was either this or what we know as a mustard bush, a plant. Um, but this is known as the mustard tree. Um, you can see how big it is. That's about as big as they get. They've got about 20 to 23 feet. Um, so they're not large at all by any stretch of the imagination. So when Jesus decides he wants to talk about the kingdom, instead of talking about the great Lebanon cedar, which is the imagery that everyone knows when we talk about great and powerful kingdoms, he chooses the mustard tree. So the question becomes, why? To get their attention. Get their attention. It would, certainly would get their attention. The moment he starts talking about a great kingdom and talking about a seed, everyone would sort of expect, well, okay, here, here comes the tree of life story, the, the, the cedar story, right? And he comes out with mustard. So it's definitely going to get their attention. Why, but what's, what's significant or not significant about a mustard tree? I see a couple people that are about to say something, so I'm going to wait. Okay, maybe not. I, the, the most significant thing about the mustard tree is it is not significant at all. 
When you compare it to a, a, a Lebanon cedar, it is, is nothing, right? It's just a little sort of garden plant. Yeah, it's tiny, right? And we know that a mustard seed is tiny. And we talked earlier about the growth, so the imagery of this really tiny mustard seed growing into a tree. And when you get it in Sunday school, it's usually this little tiny mustard seed is going to grow into this great, you know, this tree that's going to provide, you know, shade to the whole world. And then you see what the, the tree is, and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, there's a, you know, Lebanon cedars have seeds too, and they grow to these huge things. So Jesus is making a point here, and it is that, well, the kingdom isn't isn't great and powerful and large and huge in the way that you think it's going to be. If he uses the cedar, what does that do for people's minds? What, what expectation is he building for the people who are anticipating the kingdom of God? Yeah, that it's greatness, that it's going to be powerful. And, and we've talked before, and, and you probably have heard said before, that the people of Israel were expecting a king to ride in and become a powerful nation and rule the world again. And that would be the cedar. And so Jesus is saying here, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. It is in some ways small and insignificant, but it will do some of the same things. Same thing being providing the shade and the safety. But he does, he does include the birds of the tree. So we have that piece of it that gets carried forward, right? It's also worth noting that the, the Egyptian and the Babylonian empire, how did they bring peace to the world? Do you know how that actually happened? It ends up being the same with Rome, right? Rome has the, the sort of the motto, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Do you know how they brought about peace? By killing people, right? These empires grew and became peaceful by marching their armies across the world and completely annihilating anyone in their way. And so there's peace because you just basically kill anybody that resists you. You're not gonna have trouble if you just wipe out everybody that, that stands in your way, right? And so, in some ways, Jesus, of course, as someone who talks about living by the sword and dying by the sword, uh, is, is saying that this is not how this kingdom is going to be built, that it will become pervasive as he moves into that next parable about the yeast. We see that it is small and significant. Again, a little bit of yeast is not significant, especially in comparison to the amount of flour that it's going to be placed in to make bread, right? It's, the, the point is that it's insignificant, but it's going to permeate and have an effect throughout the whole well, in that case, bread, but the empire and the world is, is the point that Jesus makes there. And so it is in some ways small and insignificant, yet very powerful. And it will offer peace in a way that these others likely and do not and have not. So what, what then is the parable about? I guess we're, we're talking more about summarizing it. So if we put it in Luke's context, think about what's just happened. What is the point that Jesus is trying to make? Remember, he's just been teaching the synagogue. A crippled woman who can't stand up has come in. He's healed them. He's healed her in front of everybody. They've gotten upset. When we read this parable, usually it becomes all about the mustard tree and the mustard seed, right? This is, and, and it's what everybody, where everybody goes. If you Google this, what is this parable about? It's all about the mustard seed growing into a tree and about the growth of the kingdom, right? The thing that is small. But if you put it in its context, what's more important for Luke than the mustard tree is the birds, right? The point that Jesus is making is something about the nature of the kingdom, but the fact that the kingdom becomes the place of safe haven and harbor. The kingdom is the place that this woman can come and be healed. Does that make sense to you? What's the therefore, therefore, right? The therefore is because Jesus needs to tell them about the kingdom and how it is, exists and is coming to make sure that people like her are made whole. 
That's actually within the Lucan context. That's the crux of the parable, not, not the discussion about the tree. And that's not to say that the mustard tree and seed is not important. It is. I told you, I mean, and I've said already, like the fact that he changes up the metaphor is important. He's telling you something about that. But what he's driving towards is that the kingdom, when it comes, is, is this place where people who need help, people who need safety, people who need healing, people who are broken and need to be whole can come. The birds of the air can come and make their nests and find safety in the kingdom. Does that make sense? And then he goes on and tells a couple stories about how all of you who think you know what it's about are going to find yourselves on the out because that's what it's really about. And so the parable of the mustard seed kind of sits as almost like the fulcrum point between a couple of stories that lead into it and a couple lead out of it, right? And it is the hinge point where it's about healing, and then he goes on to talk about how it's unlike anything you expected. And a lot of you are going to miss it because of that, right? So that tree imagery kind of gets picked up and moved into the next portion. But the crux of it, coming off of the, the therefore, right, is all about the kingdom being the place where people find rest, love, acceptance, safety, right? So now, we've, we've gone through sort of the context, we've kind of teased out the meaning, the multiple meanings of, of, of the parable. And so now the question, if we're talking about theology today, how do we as a church stand between that, the text and, and what it means, and our world today? And so the question I have for you, and I hope to get some responses, is what does that mean for us now? How do you take that from here and make that a practical reality for you this week, this month, for us as a church as we go forward? If that's what the kingdom is, what do we do with that? It's a big question, right? Sorry? Sure, we got to plant seeds, right? Hopefully seeds have been planted here, right? And hopefully we understand ourselves. I mean, let's, let's go that direction for a, for a minute. So if we are to be the kingdom, we can, we can very much think, our, think of ourselves as the tree, right? In the same way that we talked weeks ago about ourselves being built into the temple, that we are the living stones. The metaphor, I mean, now we're definitely mixing metaphors, but the, the ultimate reality is that, that we become the kingdom bearers. So in some ways, the, the seeds that are planted here that grow into the mustard trees, well, we are in some way the branches and, and the pieces of that tree in the same way that we're the body of Christ, right? And so uh, what, what does that mean then? That's very good. She was talking about how the birds would find a, a branch that would be stable, that would be safe. They're not going to perch on a, a branch that is going to break underneath them. And so that we need to understand. And I don't know that you even necessarily need to go to the, to the branches per se, but the parable itself basically says that you as the church need to be the place where these people can come find that safety. We're still talking sort of in principle I want to say, and it goes back to the question that we asked a couple weeks ago when I asked you, what, what is it in the world that you look out and you see it that breaks your heart, right? Who are those people that are broken, that need safety? Who are those people that need to be brought in, right? We may have people in our, in our midst right now who, because of various circumstances, uh, are broken themselves, right? Maybe the person sitting next to you or behind you uh, needs that safety, right? One of the questions is, are, are we a church with each other that even does that? We, we would hope that we could look at the outside 
world, right? The people that we come into contact and, and be that safety for them. But one of the first questions we have to ask is, are, are we that safety net? Are we that tree that each other can come and confide in and know that we will be loved and cared for and not judged? And as soon as I say that, I want to put a little asterisk there and say, yes, we are, of course, a, a community that ought to hold each other accountable, right? That's a piece of it. But accountable, you, you hold each other accountable in, in love, right? And so that if, if you're struggling with something, uh, some sort of sin, and you come and we talk about it, like, I'm not going to kick you out of here because you're too evil, right? God has grace for you. Probably something we need to work through. Right? But hopefully if you're, com- if you're coming to me or to someone else to, to discuss that, you're doing so because you're willing to work on it. So that can be in grace. But there are other kinds of brokenness. Right? I, I'm lonely. I'm depressed. I was abused. And I need to talk, you know, maybe, maybe last week, maybe 20 years ago. And that's coming to the surface and I need to be able to talk about that. Are we a, are we a church? Are we a people where we can s- sit down with one another and, and one, are we willing to listen and not judge and love and offer wholeness and acceptance that, that God would offer. But are we a people that other people feel comfortable even trying to do that to? Do people know that we're that? Do you all know that about each other? I, honestly, I don't, because of the situation, that's a question I don't have an answer for because I've not gotten to know all of you as well as I would like because we don't get to sit down and talk all the time. I have a sneaking suspicion that you are just hearing you, a lot of you talk about the community that exists here. But are we actively trying to be that sort of community? Have we said to each other, we're safe, right? You can come and you can talk to me about anything. I'm not going to run you off. I'm not going to look at you sideways. I'm not going to go, go back to the group and gossip about you later, right? The birds of the trees can come nest here. And so one of the things we got to get right is, are we that for each other? And once we've got that down, then we can talk about, okay, do we, what do we do with the battered women's shelter? How, how do we become a safe space for them? What do we do with the at-risk kids who, are, who wander around the streets? How do we become a safe place for them? What, what do we do with the hungry people? We feed them once a month. Is there more that we can do? The health of, yeah, sure. Sure. Are we, uh, when you can't sit through Yeah, I'll just repeat that for the people that were, are watching online and can't hear you, but um, you're talking about trying to decipher for this church what kind of tree we want to be. And obviously the struggle that we find in the midst of our current pandemic when exactly how you reach out and exactly how you bring people in isn't obvious. But I would say it's, it's in asking these questions that you find the answer. I think too often we come to that question and the question we're asking, and we want to go sit in a room and think about and rationalize the kind of church we want to be, or you know, to use the metaphor, what kind of tree do we want to be? When instead, I think we need to be asking the question, who are the birds? And I think that in some ways is what's in front of you, right? So as we think about ourselves here as a church in this place, at this corner of Zanesville, but also as a people who go about our lives and, and the different communities that we're a part of, who is in front of us? And I think that, that question drives to, who, where is God calling us as individuals and a church? I think that's the way the question gets answered. Not so much, oh, we would love it if we can be you know, the next mega church with a rock band. And you know, like, what, maybe that's not what this place needs. So 
I, I, I hear what you're saying, that, and because it's always a struggle, right? I think this is a question that always gets to ask, and it needs to be continually re-asked, is how, how do we become the place of reconciliation and wholeness that God needs for, the, for all of his churches to be, but what particular kind of place of wholeness and reconciliation and restoration do we need to be? That's a question we have to continually ask ourselves because the birds change, right? And, and that's the theological task. What, happened, what worked 200 years ago doesn't work now because the context that this church was in and the way in which it stood between text and context and the theological task of realizing what does it mean to be a church for that people 200 years ago is different than what it means for this church with these people in this town, in this world and time and place means. That's, that has to mean something different and look in some ways different. There are certainly universal things that transcend those. Obviously, you know, we've talked about a lot of those already. I don't want to reiterate myself too many times, but and this is one of the reasons I want to talk through, particularly this parable today, is another, kind of another way to talk about who, who, are, who are we? Who are we? One of the universal truths is we must be a place of safety, of wholeness, reconciliation, of truth. And if we can find that balance between speaking truth and being loving, then, we're, then we really got something. But the, the question is, again, how do we, how do, we do that? And so I think we've kind of beat that point. We don't need to kind of belabor that. But I do want to leave that as an open question out there. It's something that we as a church, we have to, we have to come to terms with. Think for yourself. I mean, so let's think individually for a minute. Are, are you in your mind and in your heart, and, and you know yourself, are you the kind of person that is like this? Are you a safe person? If someone comes and sit down, sits down with you and says, I have this problem, What's your first instinct? Is it to listen and to accept in love and to help? Or is it, oh my goodness, I gotta go tell John and Betty. They will not believe this. If it's that, we've got a, we've got a problem because that's, that's gossip and, and that's not healthy. Um, but if it's, how can I help this person? How can I listen and understand? How can I be Jesus for this person that sits in front of me? That's, that's where we need to be. And, and if, if, you're there, if you're there, great. We're ready to go. I mean, and we all struggle with that, right? We're human. We all get good juicy news and we may want to go talk about it to somebody, but we know better. And so we, we ought to resist that temptation. But then think about, you know, the people that you come into contact with. Who, who, is, who can you go actively seek? Sometimes it's a matter of you just being, making yourself available so that people know that they can come talk to you, right? But there's another piece of this that says, okay, I see that person suffering. I got to go help. And so that's where you can think individually in your life and who you come in contact with. Even in the midst of the pandemic, you still are in contact with people. It may be you see them on Facebook. Maybe you see them from across the room. Or maybe you run into them at Walmart or somewhere where you're out shopping. And there's a, a safe and smart way to engage that person. We don't have to... COVID is a great excuse not to do anything, right? It's, it, it can be a great way to say, ah, it's not safe for me to go do that. I, I, let's, let's not do that. Let's find, let's find wise and prudent ways to love each other and the world around us. Because at the end of the day, that's what kingdom is, right? That, that's what Jesus came to do, is to bring the world back into right relationship with him, to bring wholeness, reconciliation, restoration. We have talked about, and I'll reiterate, we are marching towards 
the moment when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. And we ought to be a kingdom people that is about preparing the way for that and bringing that into existence in the best way that we can, knowing that it will never be perfect until that day. But that's what we're here to do. And so when we think about, back to the earlier comments about what kind of church we wanna be, well, in general terms, that's the church, that's what the church is. So we better start there. And then we ask the other questions about who it is that, who it is specifically. Here's the universal truth. What is the particular application of that truth? That's what we've got to figure out. And so I, I've had a couple of people over the last month or so take me up on answering the questions I've answered. I want to encourage more of you to do that. We're not going to figure out what kind of church we need to be by just all sitting in our rooms thinking about it, right? So we've got to start to have some communication. And one of the ways we can do that is for you to pick up the phone and call me or one of the consistory members or one of the other leaders in the church and start to voice that and so that we can start to have those conversations. So I wanna encourage you to do that. Please do that. Um, no idea is too crazy or off the wall. <laughs> Maybe you drive out of here today and you see something on the way home and you're like, whoa, that's something that we can address. Write it down, send us a note. But that's the sort of thing that we, ha- we, gotta, we really have to start to be paying attention to. Let's be done. I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for the loving, good creator that you are, that we've referenced a number of times today, that that who you are, we see in Jesus. And in Jesus, we see uh, a loving brother. Uh, We also see our king. But we see one who was sent to bind up our weaknesses. We see your son who on a Sabbath, knowing he would face ridicule, calls a woman down in front of everyone to heal because that's what you do and what you're about. And so God, we just ask that as we move forward and continue to have these conversations about what our purpose is as a church and where we go from this place, that we would continue to remember and have in the front of our mind that the purpose of the kingdom is to be the unassuming mustard tree that the birds of the air know that they can come and find safety in the midst of. And so we ask you to transform us into those people individually, transform us into that place collectively, and give us your vision and your eyes for our world so that we may uh, carry your message to the place that we have been called. We ask this in your son's name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.